Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week we're talking to Adam Sagey, who until about a week ago was the overnight reporter at the Chicago Tribune for half the week, joining Pete Nikias on the overnight desk covering mayhem and chaos all across the city. Now in his about two years on that job, Adam has seen some really awful things and he's seen some interesting things and he's seen some uplifting things. And we kind of talk about all of those uh, all of those things that he's seen and all the things that he's done. He had a pretty great run. He's leaving the Chicago Tribune. He's leaving the city for South Africa where he's got a new adventure going on, which I encourage you to check out. But before you do, I hope you'll consider subscribing to this podcast on iTunes. It's been a few weeks since I published an episode. It's been kind of a kind of a hectic summer with a lot of stories going on, but it's time to get back on it. And so this is an episode that's a really good reintroduction. It was uh, really fun to talk to Adam, and I'm going to miss his violin. But I'm glad he took some time to talk with me about his career. And so for now, enjoy the talk. There was a tweet that Pete put up, like, last night was Adam's last night on overnight and someone responded did he get shot <laughs> and Pete's response was like no he's leaving but not no that's a ridiculous question no I guess it's well within the realm of plausibility right yeah I try not to think about that two years on overnights it's been about a week since you did your last shift right mm-hmm. how you feeling feeling like you know, it was the right time for me to take a new step like I'm already feeling more rested and um, it's going to take some time to like reset the whole body clock from, you know, overnights and to be able to sleep through the night again and all that. You know, you're asking me before about whether I'll miss it. And, you know, as a whole, you know, I'm, I decided to take the step cause I was ready for something new, but there are a lot of parts of it that I'll miss, you know, I'll miss working with the small number of people in the newsroom that I got to work with at the beginning and the ends of my shifts. I'll miss the people out at scenes that I got to see consistently, whether it was, you know, overnight video stringers or, you know, other reporters or some police officers that I'd started to recognize, you know, not a whole lot of them, but some, and, and the work too, you know, it was sad work, but, you know, it was work that I cared about and I'm sure I'll miss that. What are you taking away from it? A, you know, a lot, but I think the main thing is just a whole lot of like memories and experience of what Chicago at night looks like in particular, what Chicago violence leaves behind and just how much pain there is at these scenes. I think people who don't, you know, go to a homicide scene, whether for work or because it's someone that they know. Like, there's a tendency to assume because, you know, it's a neighborhood maybe where there's a lot of violence that, uh, you know, there isn't the same level of pain as there is if, you know, there's a shooting somewhere that's not accustomed to violence. And pain is pain, you know. Even people who are deep in gang life and people, you know, who know them probably understand on some level that the likelihood they'll be hurt or killed is higher. You know, finding out that someone who was extremely alive an hour ago 
is all of a sudden like lying crumpled in the middle of the street somewhere is, you know, about the worst news you can get. And you, I saw that time and time again across the city. Um, and I think I, I really want those scenes to stay with me. Um, it, it's a very weird feeling like living in, you know, not a perfect neighborhood in the city, but a, a comfortable one, a nice one. Logan a, Square. Yeah, a reasonably safe one. There is crime here, there is violence, but not at levels of some other neighborhoods. And then going to work and, you know, being in some of these neighborhoods where people will tell you we're accustomed to violence and we, you know, we know a ton of people who've been hurt. And then to just to come back and forth between those worlds is strange. And I, I want to make sure that, I want to make sure that my, you know, the experiences I had you know, stay with me and inform the person that I am and the work that I do later. How jarring is that? It's weird. It's very strange. Because, you know, I've... You know, it's it's a nice little living room we're sitting in. You know, uh, your girlfriend was here earlier on her computer. You know, you and I are sitting here on this computer. Uh, it's, it's very far away from... from Englewood. Figuratively and literally, you know? Was, was that hard? Sure, and I think that's like the story of this city right now in a lot of ways, is you have a city that is one of the most desirable cities to live in in the world, in my opinion, in a lot of ways, for many of its residents. And then, you know, for others, while violence is only one facet of living in a neighborhood like Inglewood, for example, I mean, it's a huge one that really shapes your experience if you live there. Um, And so going back and forth between, you know, and it's not just Inglewood, too. It, it, you know, it's Inglewood. It's South Austin. It's Back of the Yards. It's Lawndale. You know, there are a lot of neighborhoods you go to and you talk with people and, um, you know, they'll say, it's, I can't believe this is still going on. You know, I've lost so many people. Um, and to go from hearing that at three in the morning and then coming back to the Magnificent Mile for work and coming back to Logan Square, it's, it is really jarring. Um, makes it hard to enjoy brunch. Definitely. Definitely. But so, uh, uh, the level of violence that you saw, do you remember, like, your first body? Yeah, absolutely. It was on the west side. It was on North Avenue. I know exactly what, I want to say, I want to say it's by Cicero Avenue, a little bit west of Cicero. Um, and I'd actually been at a scene near very close by, about a mile away. Scene of a shooting. A detective had been talking with me and he said, look, when you are driving out of here, you should be very careful because we think there's an extremely high likelihood there's going to be retaliation tonight. Probably 10 minutes later, a kid on a bicycle is shot about a mile away. And I got there very soon after. The ambulance was still there. But I could tell from the body language, you know, no one was doing CPR, no one seemed particularly stressed. But they had already pronounced this kid dead. He's lying there, his body's uncovered, the bike is next to him. They've just, I don't know if they set up a crime scene while I was there, if they just put tape up, but I was standing probably 20, 30 feet away. And it was, I mean, the strange thing about that scene, apart from it being my first body, was like how normal everybody was being. You know, the police officers who were there, their job isn't to collect evidence because the detectives or the crime lab will come later. They just have to make sure no one interferes with the scene and tampers with it. So they're just standing around chatting with each other. And, you know, there are officers 
in, I think it's the 15th district right there. Um, they've seen a lot of shootings. They've seen a lot of bodies. And even though they're feet away from the body that's literally still warm right there, you know, they're talking with each other. I think, I think some of them were joking and their laughter kind of bothered me, but I you know, try not to be judgmental about it because I put myself in their shoes and, you know, if, if you, 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 be, you do become accustomed to what you're around. And if you're a police officer in many neighborhoods in Chicago, if not most, you become accustomed to working shootings. And it sort of, um, I don't know, you let your guard down, I guess, about your demeanor. And also there were no family members there. So I think I later learned the kid wasn't from the neighborhood. He was just biking through. So sadly, he's probably just, uh, you know, mistaken for someone else or someone from the neighborhood. But the people who were there were bystanders. They were taking photographs. There, you know, wasn't anyone sobbing or, you know, vomiting or collapsing like I'd see at other scenes later. Um, They were just sort of standing there. And so I kind of always wondered what my reaction to seeing a body would be. I talked with a photojournalist or or someone who said he'd been working with this photojournalist about my age who had thrown up the first body that he saw. And I kind of wondered, would I have a crazy, you know, an intense physical reaction? And, you know, the weird thing was that I kept my composure. I didn't really react, and, and that was almost weirder for me, seeing you know, police officers acting normally, bystanders acting normally, and, you know, almost like watching myself, just, you know, taking a couple photos of my phone, sending up a tweet, um, when like you know an unspeakable act of violence had just taken place right there like it, it's crazy how, how normal that an actual scene can feel if there isn't anyone grieving right there was that an outlier where, was there usually someone grieving at the scenes you were at huge difference depending on whether there's a body on the scene or someone's taken to a hospital if someone's taken to a hospital family friends will go right to the hospital off and they won't go to the scene and if the body's on the scene that becomes the meeting place where people show up and you'll get huge you know displays of human grief and emotion and you know within a family there'll be a big range some people will be completely you know overcome and not really able to control their emotions and others will almost be in shock and not displaying a lot of emotion it was, it was hard a lot of times to see that, um, to see siblings grieving was always difficult, you know, to see parents grieving, um, a lot of screaming, a lot of tears, a lot of hugging. How would you approach that as a reporter, to talk to people? I would tend to be as inconspicuous as I could at first, to kind of take the temperature of the scene and see who seemed to be immediate family. And the general strategy that Pete Nickius taught me and that I've developed that seemed to work is, you know, try to, you know, you don't go up to the person who's sobbing and shaking and introduce yourself and ask a really hard-hitting question right away. You try to find someone who seems to be, you know, a family member, but, um, you know, pretty composed. And I would introduce myself and say, look, don't want to get in the way. Just want you to know that I'm here, and would love to hear about this person. Anything that you guys want to share, um, I'll be here for a little while. Here's my card if you want to talk tomorrow. You know, sometimes they would talk to me, or they'd find a family member who's ready. 
a lot of times people weren't ready to talk, and I can't say I blame them. People get mad sometimes? Sure. Definitely. Um, but, you know, I always just tried to be polite, and I wasn't pushy. If someone didn't want to talk, it's not you know, worth it to me to get you know, a couple quotes from them if I pester you know, I'd rather people talk to me because they're ready to talk and they want to. And I think we talked earlier about personality types. I think I can be a shy person and I try to, you know, let that work to my advantage and, and not pester and, and sort of show people that I wasn't going to pry. And if they were ready to talk with me, you know, that I, I was there to listen more than anything. And I think that did work sometimes. Just to let people know I'm here. Exactly. So two years ago when you started on this journey, um, do you think you were prepared? Is there any way to prepare for this kind of job? I think my journalism school training and my internships, you know, had made me more comfortable approaching people and talking with them and asking what can be kind of awkward questions um, and just getting past, you know, the natural hesitation of approaching a stranger and Know, asking them, you know, for an interview, basically. So that helped. I, I'd interned at papers before, and the basics of journalism. I think, you know, everybody gets better out of practice. So I had those down. And I don't think there's like necessarily a way to prepare to cover, you know, intense violence and pain and trauma. Um, but I learned on the job pretty quickly. I mean, Pete. Nickius and Will Lee, who's the overnight reporter who left making room for the spot when I joined, um, they both trained me at the beginning and had been doing it for long enough to know the basics of what a new overnight reporter needs to know. Everything else I picked up as I went along. So you've, you, you've probably covered, uh, do you think you've covered hundreds of crime scenes? Just dozens? Many, many dozens? Um, I, a lot? Yeah, well, there's 52 weeks in a year, so I've done this, you know, more than... Uh, Just about two years? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say it's covered. It's hard to know. A lot, probably hundreds of scenes. Out of all the, the scenes and things you covered, is there anything you wish you'd been able to do more of? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's... There's a lot of humanity at crime scenes that we that doesn't get captured in all of our stories. I think as a newspaper, the Tribune has gotten, or the Breaking Desk in particular, has taken a renewed interest in telling narratives of what crime scenes are like. I mean, the timelines that uh, Pete and I have worked on with the overnight photographers, you know, is something that is a new form of storytelling that is trying to capture some of that. But I wish I was able to to do more of that and to you know paint more of the spectrum of you know humanity that you see at crime scenes. I saw a ton of pain, and I think that's conveyed in stories about violence. But you also see like you also see incredible compassion, like people supporting one another, and you know trying to help you as a journalist as best they can, and um, you know who are just incredibly fed up with the causes of violence in their neighborhood. And, you know, that's capturing all of that is, you know, something that's really important too. And we 
try to, and I tried to, but I wish I was able to do more of that. I think that's important. Are there any uh, nights that are particularly memorable to you from your time out there? A lot of them. <laughs> Remember the first night I heard gunfire? That was, you know, just like feeling the adrenaline going after I heard that was big. I remember the other nights that I heard gunfire. Where were you? First one, I was on Western Avenue around 70th Street. So that's Chicago Lawn, that neighborhood. And then there's another one. I was in the 11th District, just north of the Eisenhower. And I think it's probably East Garfield Park there. I was at a scene and police called in gunfire that I heard a couple blocks away from there. And then again, actually not too far from there, same experience. I was at a crime scene, heard gunfire, police called it in, left and went to the gunfire, and I was kind of left figuring out what to do. Um, so I remember those. I remember, um, you know, the morning that a plane landed on Lakeshore Drive. It's just like a crazy experience, um, you know, getting there moments later. How'd you hear about it? Heard it on the scanner. There was a dispatcher that was, she kind of like couldn't really believe what she was reading off to her officers. And it was close to the trip tower, actually. So I got there pretty quickly. And um, sure enough, there's a two-seater plane sitting next to Lakeshore Drive. What'd she say? Because it pushed it off. What did the dispatcher say? She's like, you're not going to believe this, but uh, we're getting tickets. A small plane just landed on Lakeshore Drive. So if you guys could get there as soon as you can, let me know what you need. (laughs) <laughs> uh, just another day at the office I guess I guess so so I had to wake up the overnight photographer who had just gone to sleep like I promise I'm not messing with you this is real <laughs> who was that? it was Jason that's funny and he made beautiful photos once he got there because the sun was rising behind the plane and that was cool um, I mean I'll remember the crime scenes that I spent hours at um, just kind of watching that that grief and emotion play out there were a lot of them. Yeah. Did you ever run into dangerous situations out there? Uh, I mean, uh, dangerous, I don't know. Were there situations that made me, you know, concerned? For sure. I mean, hearing gunfire, definitely I became hyper aware of where I was and what I had to do to get out of there if I had to. Um, There's a scene where a friend of... The 17-year-old who'd been killed was very unhappy that I was taking photographs and um, kept sort of speaking very loudly about, well, he, he told me to stop taking photos, and even after I had what I needed and I stopped taking photos, he kept talking about how he was going to stay around and break my camera if he saw it again, told me it was time to leave and asked where I was parked. Um, but again, even there, you know, like there's another guy from the neighborhood who walked with me to my car and was like, look... You know, he's upset and he's talking a big game, but you're safe here. He's not going to do anything to you. I know him. I know what he's about and you're fine. And, you know, so I worry that when, you know, when we talk about like the dangerous situations that I faced, that that becomes like people's image of what it's like to go through, you know, Inglewood or Morgan Park or South Shore at night. And sure, like, Driving in a violence-prone neighborhood in a city at night, like, you know, be aware of where you're going. But the people that I met out at night were just so much, there were so many more people who wanted to help either with the reporting I was doing or just, you know, tell me about their neighborhood and 
help me be safe than like any kinds of people who gave me a hard time. Well, there's two things about that. One is uh, you're very thoughtful about the... It seems to me like you've given a lot of thought to what it's like to grow up in those kinds of neighborhoods, right? Mm-hmm. And how it touches people's lives. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, speaking of the giving people an image or something, it's a story that I know we've talked about, but I just think it's really interesting. Gang signs, some of my flashing gang signs mm-hmm. at you. Did that happen? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. There was a long-term story that I was working on with Abel, the Rebay, the photographer, and we went to the house of a teenager who'd been killed. There was some kind of a memorial service on his birthday a couple of months after he was killed. And we went and there were guys on the corner representing the cars that went by and, you know, talking pretty loudly. And as we got out of the car, you know, we're trying to figure out what was going on and whether we were safe. And I mean, that was, that was interesting for me to sort of have that window into, this was on the, corner of the block that this kid had grown up on and so like all of a sudden just seeing that it like made more sense to me you know like if I'm a kid who has to walk by you know guys who are being tough and being aggressive towards passing drivers and pedestrians yeah I'm gonna try to become friends with them and at some point you know if they like me they're gonna want me to hang out with them and that's sort of how it starts and like to me it was you know a little concerning to see guys who are literally walking up to cars in the intersection and, you know, trying to figure out who's in the car. So that's not like a comfortable situation to be in as anybody, but particularly as an outsider, but it did give me like a window into what it's like to, you know, be a kid in that neighborhood. Other times. Did you flash a sign back at him? <laughs> Throw out the crown? I did not. There was another situation where I was in my car going to a shooting in Albany Park there was a couple of blocks from the shooting. My windows were down and a couple of teenagers who likely had been, you know, drinking or, you know, on something were very loudly asking if I was a king and, um, using a lot of profanity in the ways that they were asking that. And, you know, I was a little concerned there for sure because they're just so young and seeming like they're trying to show off. And there are people who, you know, get shot in that situation because someone's trying to, prove to their fellow gang members that they're tough enough and I don't want to be that guy and so you uh what'd you do I waited I didn't respond to them and then the light turned green and I kept driving see that's uh I mean I grew up in Little Village and it's been a very long time since I've been checked uh what age did that start for you uh probably 11 12 yeah wow there's a kid who there's a kid who was fucking with me when I had a cast I had a cast. Yeah, I'm showing you this big scar I have oh, on my right index finger from a Fourth of July accident, actually. And the uh, fireworks? Uh, no comment. And, <laughs> no, it was sort of fireworks, sort of a bottle, uh, sort of a bunch of stupid being a kid type of things. And, uh, you know, there's just somebody who would mess with me, and I had a cast on because mm-hmm. I had a uh, tendon surgery. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's been a while. But that can't be pleasant, especially in a car, you know? Yeah. And you talk about when I think about what it's like growing up in these neighborhoods, you know, I have that experience where like, yeah, it's unpleasant for me. And then I get to come back to Logan Square, which is not a neighborhood where that happens to me, even though there are probably some people it happens to in Logan Square. But I think about, you know, what it was like for you growing up in Little Village and people who grow up in 
you know, that part of Albany Park, maybe, um, you know, if people suspect you're in a gang or something like that's something that, that must happen a lot. And I like it, uh, it's a, a lot of people ask when I tell them about my work, how much of the violence is gang driven, right? How much of it is just, you know, in between these gang members as if it's like somehow a different, uh, you know, there's like a, a clear category of like good people and gang members. And one of the things I'm taking away from these two years is like how pervasive gangs are in a lot of neighborhoods. And I'm sure you know it as well from your reporting or from growing up in Little Village that it's like a magnet that draws a lot of people in and like no one grows up wanting to be a violent gang member, right? When in some neighborhoods it's for a wide variety of reasons a cyclical thing that people get swept up into it and sooner, you know, soon they're the older gang members recruiting younger people. Well, you know, it's, it's a, it's a thing where, uh, uh, I, I think that's probably right. The cyclical, cyclical thing, but the, uh, that story you did with Abel, that's the story that ran like January 4th, right? Yeah. I, think, uh, yeah, I think like the second or third maybe. But yeah, beginning of January, it was part of the 2012 violence, or it was a 2013 year-end sort of package of violence stories. Tell me about that, the reporting of that. So that... Because um, that would be something you're proud of, right? Yeah, I'm happy I got to do that. Um, I had written a story about a 16-year-old... Angel Cano, who was shot in the afternoon in back of the yards, and did it, you know, as a pretty short story. There was not a whole lot of information that police were giving out. They sort of gave out the typical amount of information they give for a homicide, which is not a whole lot. And we had a short story that went up. And, you know, the headline was like, Boy 16 gunned down in back of the yards, or shot in back of the yards. And I got an email from Angel's classmates a couple days later saying that, you know, my story in no way did justice to the life that he had lived um, and really, you know, was was difficult for them to read because they understood this is what the rest of the city was going to see about, you know, their classmate and friend, and they didn't want that to be the whole narrative. So did they... The, what, what did the story say? Oh, just, just that very short story of, uh, you know, a boy was shot in an alley in the back of the yards and, you know, pronounced dead soon after. And so they invited me in to talk with them about who Angel was and their feedback on my story. And I took them up on it. And I went in and we talked about the story. And they told me a lot about who he was as a person and the many reasons that he was loved in that community. And Abel Arebe, the photographer, and I decided to, to spend some time talking with his relatives and, um, you know, his friends and people who knew him at the school and and to discuss what his life had been like and, you know, some of the forces that uh, pushed him to, you know, what we considered the edge of gang life. Yes, he affiliated with gang members. Uh, yes, that played a role in him being shot. But he was, you know, a young 16-year-old who was not a, you know, hardened, um, you know, felon or anything like that. You know, I talked with his guidance counselor at school who told me that, it was something they were talking about and, you know, trying to figure out how he was going to balance the pressure that he felt from gangs and his, you know, 
curiosity about that life with everything else he wanted to do with his life. And it was a process that the adult in his life very much felt he was still sorting out and didn't have a chance to sort out before he was killed by a kid. I think, you know, I think police said the shooter, uh, the person who's been charged with the crime is 17 years old. That's awful, isn't it? Absolutely. 17 year old? I need to check if he was 17 or 18, but in any case, I, I almost feel like it's... 18 is an, still pretty bad. There's another story to be written there, right, about what pushed him to the point where, you know, he allegedly shot him. Um, but yeah, that was a story that, look, for every shooting that we cover, there's, you know, any number of stories you can write about the background. And to be able to follow the background of this one story, for me, was really important. Um, it was not something I was able to do for any other stories really but uh, it was a special experience for me and I was really happy that his classmates got in touch and sort of pushed me and challenged me to do that isn't it I don't know how you feel I'm terrified of getting an email from someone saying your story didn't do justice to XYZ wasn't that was that like immediately like like oh no that's not good yeah, it's not like a nice thing to see, but um, in a lot of ways, another criticism was really valid, and I wish we were able to, oh, that, to to tell the kind of story that they were looking for more often. But I also felt like there were things I was going to be able to share with them about, um, you know, a- actually the morning after Angel was killed, even before I heard from them, I called his family and I spoke with his younger sister, and she you know, talked with me and told me, how upset she was and what kind of a brother he'd been. And I ended up, you know, no parents were home to give me permission to use that interview. And even though, you know, you're legally allowed to use it, I wanted, and, you know, my journalistic training is for people under, you know, let's say 18 to, to try to get a parent's permission. Um, I think they're called minors. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, whether it's 16 or 17 or 18, yeah. it depends a little bit on the paper. She was 12, I think. Um, and so I kept calling back, and, and the parents kept not being home, and, and so I didn't include it in the story, but I wanted to share with the classmates that, you know, that, that was part of the effort that I made, and, and that there are sometimes things that go on behind the scenes that aren't reflected in the story. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't mean it, it's something you should have felt bad about, because I think you were indiscriminate or thoughtless. It's just, because I don't. I know you don't. <laughs> for the record. Uh, but it's just, it's just uh, you know, there. I think about that sometimes, like, a sentence, you know, that sucks sometimes, yeah. you know. Sure, to have the this awful moment, the worst moment in a family's life, and you know, the lives of many community members be reduced to like, you know, even a couple paragraphs in a long story. It may not even get its own story sometimes when someone's killed, and that's there are reasons, you know, that the Tribune doesn't have the resources to give every person who's killed the kind of story that we did for Angel, but there's something very sad about that as well. How long have you been a working journalist? Since graduating from school? Yeah. Or, I mean, just, you know, I graduated in the spring of 2012, so not even two and a half years. And that's basically, uh, almost all of that has been at the Tribune, right? Mostly, yeah. You had to stop over at Yeah, the- well, I guess, I mean, less than that, just about two years, because I had started after I graduated with an internship at the Boston Globe. It was an internship. There was an end date to it. Yes, I was paid, but it was not a job job. 
And that's your hometown paper. Yep, paper I grew up reading. You know, what's interesting is, uh, I mean, most of your career has been covering overnights, so that's what we're talking about, but you're from Massachusetts, mm -hmm. you worked at your uh, hometown paper. Was that, like, something you were a nerd about? Oh, for sure. <laughs> I think the other interns made fun of me about it, because I was just so excited to meet some of these reporters and to work with them. Really? Uh, yeah. You were that guy? Oh, I was absolutely that guy. I, I'll, I'll tell you one story. Yeah, says, sure. So your mentor at the Tribune was Annie Sweeney, right? Yeah. And I uh, I came up to Annie once when I first met her. We shook hands. I said, you're Annie Sweeney? Because like, I always really liked her stuff. And that's actually the only time I ever did that. But <laughs> but she's like, wow. She, she, she says, wow, that has never happened to me before. <laughs> it was kind of funny. But yeah, so that was you. Yeah, I was. It was really, really cool for me to be there. Um, it was huge. Um, yeah, it was a fun summer. They gave us a lot to do. I was very busy, um, but it was cool. It's a great way to start my postgrad career, and uh, I'd been interested in it for a long time. And I kept applying, and I kept being told I wasn't quite ready. And then eventually, they gave me the chance. So I guess my advice for any young journalists who've made it through this much of the podcast is just to be persistent about the places that you want to work. Um, yeah, because, like, it's not something we've gotten into, but you got rejected a ton there, right? And you got rejected by the Tribune, too, right? Yeah, a couple times. I had applied for a couple internships at the Trib, and then I applied over the summer for some local suburban spot that opened up. And, um, you know, ultimately over the summer, they emailed me and they said, we're not going to take you for this spot, but... We like what you said in your cover letter. We'd like to talk with you if you're ever in town. So if you're in town, tell us your rounds. We'll bring you by. We'll show you the newsroom, and we'll introduce ourselves. So I came to town and told them, hey, I've got plans to be in town. <laughs> and that's how I ended up interviewing for the breaking news position because it happened that the news breaking news desk was looking for someone when I came in for what I thought was going to be a conversation and an interview for an internship spot in a couple of months. That worked out. That's serendipity. It did work out, yeah. You have left the Tribune as of like a week ago, mm -hmm. and you're going to South Africa now, right? Yes, I am. I uh, did my deep investigative reporting <laughs> skills on that. But you're going to South Africa. You've been there before, right? I've been there twice. I interned at a newspaper there in college, and I went back my senior year of college, the year after my internship. And a good friend and I had a grant, and we reported for just over a week about the World Cup's legacy on transportation in Johannesburg, and public transportation. And now, uh, this time around, you're going to Cape Town? Yep. So I was in Johannesburg both times previously. I visited Cape Town briefly and sort of made a mental note to uh, go back there someday, preferably with someone I was in love with, and I had a chance to do that now. Well, you're, yeah, you're... You have a girlfriend, and she's a photojournalist, and you're mm -hmm. a reporter, which means you guys are probably going to starve for most of your life. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so tell, tell me about your project. So we've talked for a while about wanting to report a rod together, and we're going to, this is the time for us to make it happen. We're going to be in Cape Town. We're going to be reporting in particular on what's called the born-free generation. So these are South Africans who were born after apartheid or at the end of apartheid, and they've grown up in what they call the new South Africa. So a democratic country you know, with 
either the most progressive or one of the most progressive constitutions in the world. Um, they've grown up, you know, in this post struggle with a capital S generation. So as they, you know, the oldest born free South Africans are, you know, about 20 right now, maybe young twenties, we're particularly interested in what careers they're interested in, what opportunities are most exciting to them and, and what opportunities they feel they have. Um, cause it's like a, for us, it's a pretty interesting way to check in on what promises, you know, of the anti-apartheid struggle the country has been able to deliver on and, and how much work there still is to go. Cause the country is a mixture of both of those. It's come a whole, it's come a long way in 20 years that, you know, 20 year olds now have opportunities their parents absolutely did not have and wanted their kids to have. But there's also still a lot of work to do. And like Chicago, Cape Town's a city where, in addition to having world-class universities and hospitals, there are, um, you know, neighborhoods that have very few opportunities and that um, there's a lot of reporting that needs to be done on the poverty there and the violence there. And so we're, we're curious, you know, how hopefully a wide range of 20-year-olds would describe, you know, the opportunities they feel they have and what they want to do. You nervous about it? A little bit. It's a big step. Um, you know, leaving a newsroom that I felt really grateful to be a part of and, you know, is a steady paying job for the uncertain world of freelance is definitely a little bit scary, but it feels like the right risk to take or the right set of risks to take. It's uh, There's uh, more information, right, on uh, the Beacon Reader. Yep. Uh, so we have a, a blog that we are going to be maintaining through Beacon Reader, which is a crowd sort or crowd funded journalism website. And uh, uh, what's the name of it for people to Google? South Africa's Next Generation is the name of our project. If you follow me on Twitter at Adam Segi, you can find the link there. Or if you really have trouble, you can email me, adamsegi at gmail.com, and I'll help you find it or answer any of your questions about anything else. Well, you know, I, I think. Uh, uh, anybody listening to this should throw a couple bucks at the project, which uh, uh, I, I just think it's it's a neat thing. And you know, I personally think it's badass that you're taking walking into something like that. Thanks, man. Because it's like a scary thing, right? But and just for the listeners, you've done that yourself, so you're not just saying that. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm really excited to be doing this, and I think um, I'm hoping that a lot of the things that I've learned from the overnight beat in Chicago will you know, will help me out over there as I try to understand the nuances of a city that, you know, is very segregated and has, you know, a rich and very troubled history. And I think even though it's halfway around the world and it's a city with its own issues and we don't have a history of an apartheid state here, you know, there are, there are ways that reporting there will, you know, I'll be able to draw on what I learned here. And hopefully tell stories that people here find interesting about, you know, the ideas that people have for how to make the next generation a more, you know, successful one with more widespread opportunity. And yeah, I'm pumped. In the same breath where you might be able to take the things you've learned here and apply them over there, do you think you might, when you come back at some point someday, be able to reverse apply? For sure. I hope so. Uh, South Africa is an extreme example, right? Because segregation here is 
you know, not by law. It's just based on, you know, sneaky tricks like, you know, redlining and restrictive covenants and, um, you know, ways that were sort of underhandedly supported by, you know, branches of government, but it was just so overt there, um, that it's different, but, you know, when it comes down to it, I think the issues, there are parallels. Sorry, I'm rambling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, people want to follow you. Uh, you, like you said, Twitter, Adam Sage. Mm-hmm. That's a S E G E. And uh, I only recently learned how to pronounce that. <laughs> and I used to be Sage. You're not the first person to mispronounce my last name. And, uh, and, uh, that's a good way to reach out to you or Gmail, right? Yep. So, you know, people should. And I look forward to seeing what you do. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me on.